Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. This week on Soundboard, a fascinating conversation with linguist Lee Stobrand and her students about the graffiti they documented all over Alderman Library. But first, Charlottesville Tomorrow's Emily Hayes and Elliot Robinson give us a primer on area median income and the important role it plays in housing access in the Charlottesville area. So what is area median income used for? Why is it important? So you hear this phrase area median income throughout all of these expert conversations about affordable housing. And it's really something people need to know if they want to get involved and advocate for specific solutions. So it helps sort out different households of different incomes. And I've heard from experts that basically the best solutions are when you take each group separately. So that's why it's important. How is it calculated? So area median income is the exact middle of the population of families in the area. So half of the families in the Charlottesville area make less than the median income and half make more. So it's kind of like if you took everyone in the area and lined them up Mm -hmm. by income, starting Mm -hmm. with the person who has the lowest income and ending with the person with the highest income, and and you you pick the person right in the middle. Yeah. And the exact median income that we're talking about here is around $89,000 a year. And that's for the family, remember. And the area we're talking about is Charlottesville and Albemarle, and then the surrounding counties, uh, Green, Nelson, and Fluviana. And how is it different from average area income? Why do they use median instead of average? Yeah, if we calculate it with uh, average, if we had a few billionaires, it would skew that number way higher than it would be with the the median. How does the Charlottesville area median income compare to the rest of Virginia? So it's one of the higher median incomes in Virginia. The highest is next to D.C., as one might expect, and then sort of the Richmond and Central Virginia area. This area has a really high income, partially because we have some really high-paying jobs with the university, for example, and it's an attractive area. To what extent is Charlottesville unequal when it comes to income? It's a little hard for me to answer that question because I don't know what the ideal distribution of incomes would be. It doesn't seem to me to be massively unequal. When you look at those AMI chunks, there's a lot of people in each category, including through the middle. Anecdotally, there seems to be a lot of inequality. I just haven't seen that number that way yet. Should we talk about that as compared to how we think of wealth inequality in Charlottesville? Yeah, the higher income you go, the more wealth you can acquire. People at this lowest end, just there's no access to wealth. It's hard to save. It's hard to... Homeownership opportunities are virtually non-existent. So that's part of how wealth and income are related in this subject. Can you walk us through the spectrum of area median income in the Charlottesville area? Yeah, so... AMI and percentages of AMI are hard to imagine, so I try to think about it in terms of example jobs and families. So, you know, if you think of a three-person family, maybe there's one head of the household and two children, something like that. And then I looked up jobs that kind of fall on these breakpoints. So 30% of area median income is about sort of a janitor position in the Almoral County Schools. 
that's uh, about 23,000 a year. 38,000 is sort of that 50% level, and that's like a sheriff kind of position. And 80% is sort of a teacher position with some experience. That's around 60,000. And that median income, 80,000, some assistant professors are making that much. Can you tell me about one of the people that you spoke to in your article? How did they find a place to live, given where they fall on the area median income spectrum? Antoine Brinson is this almost celebrity chef in the area. He has run some amazing kitchens all over the world. He came to Charlottesville partially because it was a more affordable area than San Francisco. And he used that like little bit of cushion to start a business with all of his savings from these high-power jobs. So now his budget is way different than it would be with those kind of jobs. And he's renting in the Forest Lake South neighborhood. He wants to buy a house. And this is what he said about his house search process. So his budget is around two hundred and fifty to 350000 He's found some areas in Scottsville that seem right for what he's looking for. But he would prefer to be a little bit closer to town if there were some more options. So how much a person or family earns relative to the area median income can determine what assistance they qualify for. What group experiences the greatest need when it comes to housing in the Charlottesville area? So definitely that 30% AMI group, that lowest income group, which includes a lot of people making minimum wage, is definitely experiencing the greatest need. If you're a family in that tier, you have a 70% chance of paying too much for housing. People say it should be around a third of your monthly income, including utilities. Mm -hmm. And in that lowest tier, many people are paying more than half of their income. I don't know how people are making it work. It just seems really hard to survive. That's over 5,000 people in Almoral and Charlottesville. And so that really is a key group for a lot of these programs. You know, public housing, that's the group that that's targeted towards. But there's not enough public housing. There's very long wait lists. What are some ways to address that need? So that group really needs resources. You know, I have this video in my article that shows housing available for sort of that teacher group. And there's much fewer options than if you make more than that, but there are some options. If you're at that janitor level, there's no options. In Charlottesville and Almoral, using this search, there were no options for like an $80,000 house. So you need resources. You need to fund the redevelopment of public housing, which is they're planning to add more units as part of that. You need rental vouchers. You need job programs so that people can get to higher income jobs. Programs like Habitat for Humanity sometimes reach that low. There are people who've become homeless or are homeless who are part of this group. I talked to one person who didn't want to be named in the article, but she was on the wait list for public housing and while waiting became homeless. She was still working, but the the money wasn't there. You need resources for that group. We rely so much on people making between minimum wage and like $23,000 a year to do so much of the work in the community, and yet there are no places exactly. to live. Yeah, They are subsidizing medium and above median income yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Really, people are either in public housing, they've found some, some housing somewhere, or they're really commuting from much farther out. It all kind of links together. If you have to live farther out to 
afford to work in this area, then that also leads to the traffic problem. And those areas don't have public transportation, as we had mentioned when Charlotte was on the program about trying to get this transportation and how to make that more efficient. And you really can't make it efficient if everyone who absolutely has to use public transportation lives 20, 30 miles away. How can a thorough understanding of area median income help us think about various proposed solutions or remedies to the housing situation here? I think the great thing about area median income is that it allows you to really look at the spectrum and think of affordable housing as this big bucket of like lots of different solutions or a toolbox with lots of different tools meant for different groups. And one of the solutions that is a really interesting thing as part of that toolbox is zoning and do you allow more housing? And often the housing that we allow, nobody looks at that and says like, oh, that's helping affordable housing because it's a higher end apartment or a medium level apartment. But if you have more supply, it really does free up that higher end. Two thirds of the people in the area who are suffering from housing make more than 30% of area median income and would benefit from more supply. That frees up that problem. You still need resources for a lot of those different groups, but if you can allow more supply, it really does um, ease the tension. It's that missing middle that you often hear people say when they're talking about housing, that little in-between type of housing that is affordable and is what someone can comfortably live in. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles that like a half-million-dollar house has. But it's enough. That type of housing just doesn't exist here. Yeah, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes are really good examples of that, that are really small scale. You almost don't notice them in your neighborhood, but they do provide a more affordable price point that helps free up things for people at the middle levels. There are so many different solutions Mm -hmm. to affordable housing for different levels. Another one to mention would be lowering taxes for certain income groups. Charlottesville, for example, does this, where if you make up to a certain income, they subsidize a certain amount of of your property taxes. And so this helps low-income homeowners stay where they are. Repairs are also really important for low-income homeowners. So the numbers I was talking about of who is experiencing the affordable housing crisis also includes homeowners who are paying more than they can afford on taxes and repairs and stuff like that. Recently, we talked about the University of Virginia's decision to raise its minimum wage to $15 an hour. Where would that put a full-time worker on the area median income spectrum? So if we're still thinking about that one head of household, two children family, so this is the only income earner, then that gives them around a $31,000 household income. That puts them above that 30% AMI group, which is good because there's like a little bit more housing available. But I'm not sure that that will really impact the area median income or sort of the, the, that number because those families are already living in the area pretty much unless they move from some of the outer counties into the ones that are covered by this area. So we've talked about how AMI is connected to housing, but what's the relationship between area median income and wealth more generally? So I talked to someone named Yolanda Adams, who is one of those lucky people in the 30% AMI group who lives in public housing. So her housing is tracked according to her income. 
one of the hard things about this, though, is if you save, if you get a higher paying job, it is not fun to see some of that income get pulled away when you're like, yes, I have enough to save. Oh, wait, not really. I still just have enough to pay my bills because the bills have increased with your income. So she talked about how one of her sons has a chronic lung disease. And so she's been staying home and has had disability. And so she is planning to go back to work as a nurse when he goes into preschool. And she said that that income still is not enough to save on. She lived for a little bit in um, Fifeville on Seven and a Half Street and just had enough for, a, I think, a one-bedroom apartment with her family, which is, you know, several children. So that was not enough. There was nothing in the private market. And even in public housing, it's hard to save. One of the things with this is that it just income and wealth are related as much as you need to save to build wealth or your family needs to have wealth. So one of the things that is interesting in the numbers is that students often fall under that 30% area median income level, but they often, but not always, have family support. It's really hard to calculate that group in. So the numbers that I was looking at, the, the person who calculated them pulled out the, the students from that total. So the need that I'm talking about does not include students, but sometimes some numbers when we're looking at poverty level and stuff like that, it's not always taken out. So it's just something to be aware of. How do you think people of different income levels in Charlottesville think of their own position in this housing market? I think for people who are at that minimum wage level, it clearly is so frustrating to look out at the housing market, see nothing, to feel like You know, for example, for Yolanda Adams, she wants to move out of public housing and be independent of any subsidies, but there's nothing available. So she did sign up to be part of Habitat for Humanity. So we'll see if that works out. But she definitely, the first time I talked to her, was depressed about there not being options for her. There's also a group that we can forget about, some of these middle-income group that, for example, the sheriff position I was talking about earlier often don't qualify for a lot of programs. You make too much for food stamps. You make too little for certain apartments. So that group can also, you know, I'm sure feels very frustrated about not qualifying but still not having affordable options. Anecdotally, I know some people who have said that they feel, quote, trapped in their homes, that they moved to Charlottesville a few years ago before there were really drastic spikes in prices, but now where they live doesn't exactly suit their needs, but they know that if they sell that house, it still wouldn't be enough money to get them to that next tier of housing that is exactly what they want. So they're making do with what they have, trying to doubling up kids in a room or something. What can people who might have a little bit more economic power do to generally support all the people in Charlottesville who are struggling to find housing that suits their needs at their income level. Resources, advocating for resources for that 30% AMI crowd, for resources that cover some of these gaps, more resources to cover people who need it, advocating for more supply. That could mean upzoning some of the single-family neighborhoods so that they will allow duplexes and triplexes that are, can be a little bit more affordable and even approving some of these apartments that are higher end, but then that takes the pressure off of people who are almost there. (laughs) 
All right, let's end this segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? So there's a Charlottesville Board of Architectural Review meeting next week, which is always interesting to look for housing things. And there was a couple of apartments um, in the UVA-ish area that I covered before that experienced sort of a setback at a previous meeting. And so they'll be back again on Wednesday at 530. Setback as in hurdle, not as in distance from the road, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, on Tuesday instead of Monday, because Monday is a holiday, is the city council meeting. It's the second one with our new council members. And the agenda is surprisingly short, so I'm not entirely convinced that anyone attending would get out in a timely fashion because there's been other times where there's only been one item on the agenda and it's lasted for hours and hours. But there is only one action item on the agenda, but I still encourage everyone to at least watch them on TV, to be engaged in the community. If you are so inclined, go to the citizen comment period and let your voice be heard. Thank you all so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Emily Hayes is a reporter covering housing and development for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. What are the ums doing? (laughs) What are the ums doing? Well, some of them are doing different, they're doing different things, but they're a sign that you are, that you're thinking, and so they're a way of holding the floor with your turn. So before each interview, as I'm adjusting the microphones, as you can hear in this piece of tape, I ask all of our guests, do you mind if I take out likes, ums, or other verbal tics like that when I'm editing? And that answer belonged to linguist professor Lee Stobrin. She and some students came into the studio to talk about their Alderman Graffiti Project, which we'll get to in a minute. But first... I'm going to play a little bit more of our conversation about what verbal tics do in our speech and how it affects how we listen to radio. So do you think that I, as a podcast producer, should be leaving like all the ums in? No, I think you should be studying what ums do. (laughs) Interesting. I think you should learn about what they're doing so that you can put in the right ones and not the wrong ones. Some of them are really quite informative. I feel like... um, I always try, if people are really nervous, to make them sound less nervous Mm -hmm. and make them sound more, like, in command of the things that they're saying. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's, I think that's right. It's very Mm -hmm. interesting because I had, I interviewed somebody, I didn't interview, I had a conversation, recorded a section of that conversation, gave it to my students to do an analysis. And my, and the, the person I was recording was a colleague, a linguist colleague. And he said at the end, he said, I sound so, oh, God, all these ums, I sound so dumb. And I said, don't worry, my students will know by this point that you don't sound dumb. And when I played it for them in class, 120 students in this class, I said he was very self-conscious when he listened to it because he heard himself speaking this way. And I assured him that you all had learned that 
that, that there, that was not something to judge a person on and that it was actually, he was thinking and he was signaling his thinking with his arms. And they were like, yeah, of course. Like <laughs> they were all so, so past that, but you're right. You're what about likes? Them. I feel really conflicted about the likes because I use like a lot when I talk to people and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, I don't think it makes me sound less intelligent or anything, but it, it really distracts me when I'm listening to the tape, hmm. especially if uh, someone's trying to make a point and there's like eight likes in the mm-hmm. sentence, mm-hmm. especially if you can't see the person. I actually think it's that we have learned how to listen on radio, like to mm-hmm. listen to, if you were on That's the phone true. talking to somebody, that wouldn't be the case That's at all. true. It's very different. It's genre. It's genre. That's so, so interesting. All right. Uh, Can you all introduce yourselves? I'm Lise Dobrin. I'm a professor in the anthropology department at UVA, and I direct the linguistics program. Uh, My name is Jacob Nelson. I'm a fourth year at UVA studying linguistics. Uh, Will Norton, uh, just graduating from UVA with bachelor's in linguistics. How did you all get the idea to do this project? So Professor Dobrin had both of us and a number of other people in a seminar called Literacy on Orality, where we were uh, studying the history and linguistics and anthropology of writing. And we did a reading that talked about uh, spelling as a social practice, I think is what it was called. And there was a discussion in this reading about, about graffiti and how uh, it's a very creative venue for experimenting with the conventions of spelling. And it occurred to us that there's a big, almost, archive of graffiti in the library carols where all the students will come and study and just scrawl little things on the walls of these carols. And uh, we then remembered that Alderman Library is about to be torn down and rebuilt from the ground up. So we thought, wouldn't it be cool if somebody would go in and document all this stuff before it's gone forever, and why couldn't that be us, right? So uh, Professor Dobrin was nice enough to make that a final project for us. So we did this instead of writing essays. (laughs) It was a lot more work, wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about the process of taking all the photos and recording them. The photos, I think, was the most time-consuming part of the work, just because we had to go through, and there's like four or five floors to the new sacks, and then there's like 20-some carols on each floor. So that's a crazy amount of graffiti. And some of the, some of the carols are like, like top to bottom, like all decked out in graffiti. So we had to go through, take detailed enough photos for everything. Um, after we did that, we uploaded it to Art Store. Um, and that's when the annotation process started with like describing where it was, what was on the graffiti, what was being described like in the works itself, and how much was there. And one thing that I was really happy with was how much the library helped us. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, they had a really good attitude of like, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. Just do it and do it right. Do do it and don't worry about getting everything perfect because you can't. Are any of you all aldermen graffiti artists? (laughs) Don't confess on the recording. You can't take it back. Are you not allowed to do graffiti in aldermen? It's graffiti, man. Oh. (laughs) I'll admit to it on the radio. This article hit very close to home <laughs> because I saw it and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I was looking through the archive and I was like, oh, my gosh, 
there are so many more song lyrics written in my handwriting <laughs> from songs that I liked when I was a first year that I remember <laughs> doing. And it's super surreal because kind of like the, the quote in the article said, you know, I, I knew I wasn't being like deep or original when I wrote them. And that's like why I put them on the carol and not like on my Twitter or something. <laughs> But it's really weird to to see them on Art Store now. Have you had other people talk about that experience? Have you all had that experience? I have heard that. So, um, actually, a librarian, a UVA librarian, <laughs> who had gone to UVA as a student and you know was like writing critically about the Vietnam War and stuff, and um, she immediately thought like, oh. They're capturing graffiti. I wonder if mine is on here. It is kind of a funny thing, this, because the way it comes about is so clandestine and kind of, you know, you don't think anyone's ever going to be able to connect this to you. And then suddenly here it comes in this, right through the same, the same institution that you're kind of defying and producing it. This is kind of self-indulgent now, but like... <laughs> When I was looking through the pictures, I was I was kind of embarrassed, you know? But then also, like, the reason why I put them there was because, like, they were little things that just meant, like, so much to me in the moment that I felt like I had to put them somewhere. But, like, I, I knew I would be embarrassed about it if I put it somewhere where other people would, like, know that they meant a lot to me. Reading a lot of the other ones, too, they're so personal, you know? People will write such personal things. I just want it's nice to hear you say that because it it confirms a lot of the hypotheses in our um, yeah. in our photo essay pretty pretty well I think. You want to talk about some of those? Hypotheses is probably a little strong. Yeah. <laughs> our yeah. analyses. Our yeah. ruminations. Yeah, um, ruminations. Yeah, so we we were just thinking about, you know, why would somebody do this? What are the motivations for it and I think we we can all kind of relate to the experience of studying in a carol, you know. You're very isolated. You're probably working on some onerous assignment. Um, you know, sitting in this in this tiny little space with weird lighting and, and you kind of have this feeling of wanting to have some shared experience with the other people who are either spatially or also temporally removed from you in your little cell that you're in. Um, so you leave something behind, and usually these are the sort of things that, like, you can't put on your Twitter, right? Stuff that you don't want your employers to look up when they do your job interview. Especially if you work at a radio station. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of embarrassing song lyrics. I think it's, like, a, at some level a sign, like, I was here too, mm -hmm. you know? Which, which is kind of sweet, and because... Because, like, a lot of the references are popular culture, they change. And so even if there isn't a date, they're kind of dated. Like, there's so much that I can't understand that you guys can understand. People do sometimes date. Like, they recognize that they're leaving a mark for the future, and they want to say when it was. There's one particular carol where it seems to become a kind of tradition where whoever sat in that carol would write the date and what the weather was like, mm -hmm. <laughs> and maybe something about how they're feeling, what uh, how their the day's mood. been going, yeah, <laughs> the mood. But an another thing that we were thinking about also is um, the kind of juxtaposition that happens between these books, which are this very sort of high, 
uh, form of writing with these uh, graffiti, which are very obviously low form of writing, so low as to be forbidden. And it often involves, you know, vulgarities and slang and all of these sort of things that you're not supposed to find in an academic library in the sort of more kind of exalted environment. Could you all read me a couple of your favorite finds or describe them? I brought up a picture that says, draw a cat if you like cats. And there's like four, five, six cats just around it. And you can tell they're by different people because like one's in pen, one's in marker, one's in like regular pencil. And they're just like different iterations of what a cat would look like. And like some are more artsy than others. Some are just like stick figures. But I think that really like encapsulates what we were looking for. I mean, like graffiti talking to itself. Mm-hmm. Like you don't know who wrote it. You don't know who started it. But like it's going to keep going. And if you probably look like today, there's maybe another cat or two. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of multilingual graffiti that goes on and something that as a linguist was very interesting to me. Um, and one that I particularly like is a German quote that uh, they put in there. It's probably a quote from somewhere, but we don't know where. So if you're listening to this, <laughs> maybe you can figure it out. It's uh, Leben ist Zeichnen ohne Rediergummi, or uh, <laughs> life is like writing without an eraser or drawing without an eraser. Life is drawing without an eraser, which is an appropriate quote to put in there. That's deep. Yes. I'll own up to one of mine um, on one of the carols, and I found this was in the project. <laughs> it says, naps I have taken here. <laughs> <laughs> one, two, three, four. <laughs> Five, six, seven. Now, let me ask you, it's very rare that you have a chance to go back and ask questions to the graffiti artist. (laughs) 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 Whose podcast is this anyway? (laughs) So when you took those, when you were on the sixth nap, were you thinking, I will have to scratch another nap number? Oh, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. So it's like, it's, it's. Now your nap becomes a communicative act even before you take it. Almost like an obligation. Like, I got to see how high I can get that number. (laughs) (laughs) The only place that I can remember seeing graffiti like that up on the internet was back when Yik Yak existed. Oh my gosh, yeah. People would put stuff that they found in the graffiti and the carols up on Yik Yak all the time. Mm -hmm. And then also, like, Yik Yak had this vibe that was so similar to all the stuff that you'd read in the carols. Hmm. But honestly, like, like... more vile. <laughs> it was like almost confessional. Yik yak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but the gr- some of the graffiti is that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I never used yik yak. Is it anonymous? It was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's I part think. of it. That's yeah. part of it. So I mean, we like attribute a lot of what's important here to the anonymity, and also you're very alone at the time that you do it, and it's just like posting in a way, right? Nobody sees where you are. I mean, if you take a picture of something that identifies that, but. It's like you're you're sending you're shooting from a hidden mm-hmm. a hidden trench or something like that. What do people need to know? <laughs> the photo essay is interesting. I actually think that that is the underappreciated piece of this. So mm-hmm. people should go to the actually to a few different things. They should see the um, photo essay. They should look at the gallery. The nice thing about the gallery we made a kind of like curated selection with commentary. The commentary adds a lot. 
because as you as you guys know, like think about the front of those boards. It's just like scribble, scribble, scribble. But then things start to kind of come out. You study it and you see it. And if we didn't capture your graffiti that you made, we're really sorry. <laughs> we wish we could have done it all. Thank you all so much. Thank you. This has oh, been yeah. delightful. It was. We'll it was actually. Um. <laughs> <laughs> she learned the lesson. <laughs>that does it for this week's edition of soundboard your source for news culture and community issues in central virginia hope you learned something new this week if you did please subscribe and share soundboard with your friends my name is mary garner mcgee our theme song is kyoja beat by maroon alasco and jay pun this is soundboard catch us at seville